Welcome to Music History Monday for October 16th, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Matilda Made Him Do It. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. A few necessary words before moving on to today's post. Our hearts bleed for the events currently playing out in Israel and Gaza. Frankly, there are no words. Today is also the 14th anniversary of my wife, Diane Elizabeth Clymer Greenberg's death. She died at the age of 35 at 12.47 a.m. on October 16th, 2009. Again, there are no words. Our grief notwithstanding, we soldier on, as we must, doing what we can to make our individual worlds a better place. For me, here on Patreon, that means publishing my blogs and podcasts, and thus, hopefully, allowing us to observe the best of the human spirit through our music. That's my gig, inadequate though it feels on days like this. We mark the premiere on Wednesday, October 16, 1912, 111 years ago today, of Arnold Schoenberg's dazzling, controversial, and in all ways extraordinary work, Pierrot Lunaire, at Berlin's Chorallian Saal. The premiere was preceded by a mind-blowing 40 rehearsals. For our information, Chamber music premieres typically receive three to five rehearsals, max. It's never enough, but that's just how it is. Forty rehearsals for Pierrot Lunaire? Unheard of. Happy coincidences. As those of you who follow me on Patreon are aware, I've been serializing my book, the composer is always right on Sundays for over two years now. Yesterday's installment was number 114. We have 27 more installments to go. For the first and what will be the only time, the topics of this week's Music History Monday post and Dr. Bob Prescribe's post and the composer is always right installment all deal with Arnold Schoenberg, the premiere of Pierrot Lunaire, and what specifically Schoenberg's wife Matilda made him do. As such, there will be some overlap between Music History Monday, Dr. Bob Prescribes, and The Composer is Always Right this week, for which I know I will be forgiven. The Schoenberg Dilemma, or the Schoenberg Dichotomy, the music of Arnold Schoenberg, 1874-1951, continues to present a unique dilemma, a unique dichotomy. On one hand, no major 20th century composer's music has been, and continues to be, 
more misunderstood and disparaged by the general listening public than Schoenberg's. On the other hand, along with Claude Debussy and Igor Stravinsky, no 20th century composer has exerted a greater influence on the compositional community than has Arnold Schoenberg. On the first page of his wonderful little book, entitled Arnold Schoenberg, Princeton University Press, 1975, the American pianist and musicologist Charles Rosen speaks to this Schoenberg dilemma. Quote, In 1945, Arnold Schoenberg's application for a grant was turned down by the Guggenheim Foundation. The hostility of the music committee to Schoenberg and his work was undisguised. The 70-year-old composer had hoped for support in order to finish two of his largest musical compositions, the opera Moses und Arn and the oratorio Jacob's Ladder, as well as several theoretical works. Schoenberg had just retired from the faculty of the University of California at Los Angeles. Since he had been there for only eight years, he had a pension of $38 a month with which to support a wife and three children aged 13, 8, and 4. He was obliged, therefore, to spend much of his time taking private pupils in composition. This enforced teaching enabled him to complete only one of his theoretical works, The Structural Functions of Harmony. The opera and oratorio were still unfinished at the composer's death six years later. Recognized internationally as one of the greatest living composers, considered the finest of all by many, acknowledged with Igor Stravinsky as one of the two most influential figures in contemporary music since Debussy, Arnold Schoenberg, at the end of his life, continued to provoke an enmity, even a hatred, almost unparalleled in the history of music. The elderly artist whose revolutionary works had raised a storm of protest in his youth is a traditional figure, but in old age his fame is unquestioned and dissenting voices have been stilled. In Schoenberg's case, the dissent may be said to have grown with the fame." Unquote. Given the fear and loathing, the name Arnold Schoenberg continues to inspire 72 years after his death. You'd think he was some sort of Nosferatu-like monster who shot puppies for sport and refused to recycle. Rather, he was a short, around 5 foot 2 inches, prematurely bald dude with a baritone voice couched in a soft Viennese accent. Someone who loved kids, he was still fathering them well into his mid-sixties, ping-pong, and tennis. He was, for a period during the late 1930s, George Gershwin's regular tennis partner. He was, for our information, terrified, not too strong a word, of the number 13 a fear known as triskaidekaphobia. His deep and abiding humanity aside, 
there are few names more likely to terrify your average concertgoer than Arnold Schoenberg. Well, it's time for this madness to stop, because there has never been in the whole magnificent history of Western music a more talented, more important, more misunderstood, and ultimately more underappreciated great composer than Arnold Schoenberg. So why all the fear and loathing? Because, because he is blamed unfairly and inappropriately for being an unrepentant modernist who single-handedly turned the art of music composition into a dry, meaningless, intellectualized exercise in sonic acrostics. On the contrary, Arnold Schoenberg as a believer. To his dying day, Schoenberg insisted that he was a traditionalist whose music had, to quote Schoenberg, arisen entirely from the traditions of German music. My teachers were primarily Bach and Mozart, secondarily Beethoven, Brahms, and Wagner, unquote. Schoenberg believed in everything traditional German music stood for. He believed in craft, motivic development, and classical era musical forms. He believed completely that good old-fashioned German romantic self-expression lay at the heart of his music, writing that, quote, there is only one greatest goal towards which the artist strives, to express himself, unquote. Most of all, Arnold Schoenberg came to believe that melody, melody was the singular element of music and that traditional tonal harmonic practice stifled melody by forcing it to adhere to harmonies, to chords. Schoenberg began to perceive his artistic mission as that of a simplifier, no small irony given how difficult his music can be for the uninitiated listener. He came to believe that only by clearing away the dense underbrush of tonal chords and chord progressions and by doing away with the distinction, what he believed was an artificial distinction between harmonic consonance and dissonance, could melody be free to develop unchecked, unconstrained, and unimpeded. Between 1908 and 1913, he composed a series of revolutionary masterworks that did away with traditional notions of harmony in favor of pure and constant melodic development. He called this process, quote, the emancipation of dissonance, unquote, though in fact, it was really the emancipation of melody. This music is often referred to as being freely atonal, a phrase that Schoenberg hated, as should we. There's nothing free about it. And the word atonal has become so ripe with misconception and condemnation that it should be banned. Schoenberg preferred to refer to this music as being pantonal. 
implying that his music embraced a sort of all-encompassing tonality. By the early 1920s, Schoenberg had codified his compositional process into something he called the 12-tone method. Again, in doing so, he saw himself as a simplifier, as a composer who'd gone back to the root source of all music, pure melody. Simplifier or not, Schoenberg was well aware of how difficult his music was for uninitiated audiences. In 1932, a friend proposed programming a work of his in Barcelona, where Schoenberg had been living for nearly a year. Schoenberg freaked out, writing, quote, I have made many friends here who have never heard my works, but who play tennis with me. What will they think of me when they hear my horrible dissonances? Unquote. So, why did Schoenberg write such music? Because he believed that someone had to take music to the next level, and that fate had decreed that person to be him. He wrote, quote, I am a conservative who was forced to become a radical. Once in the army, Schoenberg served two tours in the Austrian army during World War I, I was asked if I was the composer Arnold Schoenberg. Someone had to be, I said, and nobody else wanted to be, so I took it on myself." Unquote. Schoenberg, Early Life and Music He was born on September 13, 1874, in the working-class Viennese neighborhood of Leopoldstadt, into a poor Jewish family of Hungarian origin. Schoenberg's father, Samuel, was a shoemaker. His mother, Pauline, was an observant Orthodox Jew who came from a family of cantors. Altogether, there were three Schoenberg children, of which Arnold was the eldest. He started violin lessons at the age of eight, viola lessons not long after, and eventually taught himself to play the cello as well. He began composing when he was ten. Schoenberg's formative musical experience was playing chamber music with his friends and extended family, and it was as a performer of chamber music that Schoenberg, the composer, was formed. Composer and Schoenberg biographer Alan Shawn, the brother of the writer and actor Wallace Shawn, writes, quote, of significance to his development as a composer were two facts. One, that he had early first-hand experience as a chamber musician, and two, that he was not, and never would be, a pianist. Even his music for extraordinarily large forces possesses a chamber music quality in its contrapuntal and soloistic treatment of each instrument. Such music, could only have been written by someone steeped in the chamber music tradition." Unquote. Schoenberg's father Samuel died of influenza in 1890, when Arnold was 16. To help support his family, Schoenberg left school and took a job as a bank clerk, a job he held for five years. Increasingly, he supplemented his income with side jobs that attest 
to his rapidly developing abilities as a composer. He became a sought-after orchestrator of operettas and composer of cabaret songs. His big break came during these years, the early 1890s, when he met the Viennese-born composer, conductor, and teacher Alexander von Zemlinsky, 1871-1942. Zemlinsky, who was just three years older than Schoenberg, was a rising star on the Viennese musical scene. He had the sort of musical pedigree that Schoenberg could only dream about, having graduated with distinction from the Vienna Conservatory and even more, having been praised by Johannes Brahms, the godfather of contemporary Viennese music. Zemlinsky took a major shine to Schoenberg and became his mentor and briefly his teacher. It was through Zemlinsky that Arnold Schoenberg, a poor Jewish kid from the wrong side of the Danube Canal, gained access to the heart of old Vienna. Zemlinsky introduced Schoenberg to the music of Richard Wagner. By the time he was 25, Schoenberg claimed to have seen each of Wagner's music dramas nearly 30 times. Zemlinsky also introduced Schoenberg to a group of young musicians that met regularly at the Café Greinsteitel at Michellerplatz II. Schoenberg's cousin, Hans Nachod, later recalled, quote, They were all rebels. They were unconventional in the conventional surroundings of old, traditional Vienna, unquote. Yeah, un conventional rebel or not, the music Schoenberg composed during the 1890s, the decade of his apprenticeship, was relatively conventional. His earliest important works, his string quartet number one, his orchestral poem Peleus und Melisande, and his string sextet Transfigured Night, are fully within the leitmotif-dominated tonal style of Richard Wagner and Richard Strauss. Nevertheless, Viennese audiences were not disposed to give an Orthodox Jewish composer from the Second District ghetto an even break. Anti-Semitism shaped Schoenberg's life and career to a degree that is difficult to imagine today. For our reference, the Dreyfus Affair, which inspired Schoenberg's fellow Austro-Hungarian Theodor Herzl, 1860-1904, to propose the State of Israel, occurred in 1894, when Schoenberg was 20. The virulent anti-Semite Karl Luger, 1844-1910, was elected mayor of Vienna and served from 1897 until his death in 1910. For our information, Adolf Hitler, who lived in Vienna from 1905 to 1914, credited Karl Luger as being a formative inspiration to him. The literary forgery entitled The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which alleged a Jewish and Masonic plot to take over the world, was first published in 1903. Schoenberg's alienation which no doubt would embolden him to break away from traditional tonality in 1908, was in no small part 
a product of his experience as a Jew in Vienna. A revolutionary by any standard. For all of his protests to the contrary, Arnold Schoenberg was a true compositional revolutionary. For all of his conservatism, when it came to phrase, texture, form, and expression, Schoenberg's modernist impulse was by far the most radical of his time, and perhaps, perhaps, the most radical in the entire history of Western music. The reason is simple. Schoenberg didn't just want to free melody from the shackles of traditional harmony. He wanted to free it from any tonal centricity whatsoever, from gravity itself. Not in the long history of Western music had anyone attempted to create a body of music without some sort of gravitational reference. No matter how harmonically far out the isorhythmic music of Machaut, the madrigals of Gesualdo, the chromaticisms of Wagner, or the pounding dissonances of Stravinsky, their far outnesses are perceived as such in reference to a tonal center. But not in the emancipation of dissonance slash melody music of Arnold Schoenberg. Starting in 1908, his music achieved escape velocity, left Earth's gravitational pull behind, and entered a very different place regarding pitch. Schoenberg's desire to break with tonal gravity itself from perceiving any particular pitch as a tonal center remains the single most stunning syntactical leap in the history of Western music. It was a syntactical leap that required a level of courage and commitment that is still hard for us to fathom. One of Schoenberg's admirers recalled that on occasion, it was necessary to hustle the composer, quote, out of a concert hall by the back entrance and to shield him with our bodies against all the things that were thrown at him, unquote. Following a performance of Pierre Lunaire, a musician in the audience stood up, pointed at Schoenberg, and screamed, quote, shoot him, shoot him, unquote. It has been suggested that only someone who was already alienated from the status quo would be willing to make such a conceptual leap as Schoenberg did. Certainly, the anti-Semitic atmosphere of Schoenberg's native Vienna both marginalized and angered him. But even more, it is likely that a particular event that occurred in 1908 finally pushed Schoenberg over the edge. It was an event that made him feel as if he had nothing more to lose and thus liberated. He was able to disavow tonal gravity itself. That event was his wife Matilda's affair. Matilda made him do it. Background. At some point during the late 1890s, Schoenberg was introduced to his friend Alexander von Zemlinsky's sister Matilda, 1877 to 1923. Matilda von Zemlinsky was a quiet, sickly, and judging by her photographs, a singularly dour-looking young woman. 
Schoenberg, no Baywatch beauty himself, knocked her up. Their shotgun marriage took place in October of 1901, four months before the birth of their first child, a daughter they named Gertrude. Theirs was a lousy marriage from the start, and by 1907, it was on the rocks. Two years before, in 1905, Schoenberg had met and become close friends with a 22-year-old expressionist painter named Richard Gersel. Gersel was an archetypical temperamental artist. He had talent, but he also had problems with depression and anger. Schoenberg was also an expressionist painter of no small talent, and their friendship crystallized around their mutual love of painting and music. Gersel became virtually a member of the Schoenberg family. He even moved into the same apartment building in Vienna. Gersel and the Schoenberg clan were close, too close, as it turns out. Exactly when Richard Gersel and Matilda Schoenberg began their affair is unknown. Certainly, Arnold Schoenberg had not an inkling of it when he invited Gersel to join his family on holiday at the lakeside Austrian vacation town of Gmunden during the summer of 1908. It was there that reality struck Schoenberg right on the kisser. The art historian Jane Callier writes, quote, Matilda, caught in flagrante by Arnold, was triumphantly whisked back to Vienna by her lover, Gersel. Schoenberg, in despair, wrote out a will that in part reads like a suicide note. He seriously contemplated taking his life. The double betrayal of his wife and a man whom he had considered his friend must have been particularly painful in light of his professional imbroglios. He had come to expect regular attacks from the Viennese press and public, but had hoped that his inner circle was inviolable. For the moment, it must suddenly have seemed that there was no one on whom he could depend. Fortunately, Schoenberg's student, Anton Webern, came to the rescue, appealing to Matilda's sense of motherhood and convincing her to return, if not for Arnold's sake, than for the sake of their two young children. On November 5th, 1908, not long after the couple's reconciliation, Gersel was found dead in his studio. The night before, the 25-year-old painter had, with methodical precision, first burned all personal evidence of his existence, including a substantial portion of his oeuvre then thrown a noose around his neck and finally plunged a knife into his chest. It does not require much imagination to envision the effect of this event on Matilda. Years later, she still held a grudge against Webern for his role in the affair. For Schoenberg, too, the episode left scars that never completely healed, and even as an old man, he could be stung by a casual mention of Gersel. The art historian Jane Callier concludes, quote, The close temporal relationship between Schoenberg's final break with conventional tonality and the Gersel affair is, 
in the eyes of many of the composer's biographers, no coincidence. Schoenberg had, of course, come so far in his work that the next step was almost unavoidable. However, he feared taking it, and it is possible that the rupture of his marriage in a strange way gave him the necessary courage. What difference, after all, does it make now? He might have asked himself. In the summer of 1908, he completed his second string quartet, a work that in its last two movements reaches the very limits of tonality. He dedicated it, ironically, to his wife." Unquote. Like Beethoven's heroic reinvention of himself in 1803 in the face of his encroaching hearing loss, Schoenberg's emancipation of dissonance was, perhaps, the innovative act of a man who felt he had nothing more to lose, an artistic leap brought about by factors in equal part personal and musical. The jewel in the crown of Schoenberg's emancipation of dissonance period is Pierrot Lunaire. In terms of its impact on the concert music of the 20th century, Pierrot Lunaire stands second only to Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, which Stravinsky completed six months after Schoenberg finished Pierrot. 1912 was truly an honest mirabilis, a miraculous year for Western concert music. When we return in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes, it will be with Arnold Schoenberg's riveting Pierrot Lunaire. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.